welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm in the studio with Audrey Tran for questions from a medical student. You won't want to miss this one. And then I have none other than Epi Ellie, who is Dr. Eleanor Murray from BU University, a assistant professor of epidemiology and one of the hosts of the podcast Casual Inference, one of my favorite podcasts on epidemiology. You won't want to miss this discussion. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Audrey Tran for questions from a medical student. Audrey, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I think uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback about these questions. And uh, and in, in many quarters, these are the most popular questions. People think the board's questions can go to hell. And they prefer the kind of <laughs> real questions about life and careers mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. So people really enjoy your questions. Thank you. I like to call them... Naval gazing questions, you know, Navel-gazing. just a little, uh. just a little pondery, but I think they're helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think they're helpful. I don't know if the answers are helpful, but I think the questions are helpful. Mm, so, I disagree. <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> so what do we have today? What's the question? Okay. Um, today's question, um, since this was a huge topic uh, kind of before the new year about the hard targets versus soft targets. And I, <laughs> <laughs> they get, they get them angry. It's, it's such a, it's such a good soundbite of the phrase, but it really does. It really had me thinking a lot about kind of what, especially as I'm trying to figure out what to pursue in terms of research, in terms of medicine. Um, like you said, this idea of the attention economy, like how do you treat your time? If time is your yeah. most valuable resource, how do you make the most of it? Is kind of what I distilled from this kind of discussion. And so like, I, well, I think I get your argument, you know, simply because at some point, if simply if there's no evidence, there's no evidence, yeah. you know, like QED. Um, yeah, QED, yeah. That, that it's like, what other things can you talk about besides saying that, right? right. Um, but I also was wondering and was curious about like what your thoughts were if um, part, like where's room for science communication? Like what is the role of it if like, for example, if we're talking amongst colleagues and we say there's no evidence that should be sufficient, right, to right. Uh, have someone agree or say like, okay, point taken, we can move on and to talk about something else and possibly has more interesting data. But if we're talking to patients, if we're talking to the general public and we have to fight misinformation, especially yeah. with like vaccines yeah. um, and, you know, pseudoscience and stuff like that, is that also not uh, something worth pursuing or how do, how do we quantify that? And yeah. I think it's a little difficult um, because I think what you were saying, especially about if you really compare the valuation, right, of the work that you do when you talk about these established institutions, right, versus these other 
also sizable communities of like uh, I don't know jade eggs and and whatnot. But right. um, you know, like there may be like a huge, huge like relative distinction, and therefore it makes a lot of sense, right? That you should go after these sorts of things. But you know, like is there value, I guess, in trying to distill like how? Where does the end of the argument lie? Is it just the argument, or is it also convincing other people who may not even realize they are part of this idea? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that's an interesting question, and I guess uh, it kind of it echoes some of the themes people say, which is that um, you know soft targets are great um, opportunity to like avail ourselves of effective science communication. Mm-hmm. I guess I mean l- I mean let me frame you how I like think about it, and I guess I put vaccines in a different cat in a different camp than uh, okay. cupping and jade eggs, and I think it's clearly a different camp. So let me kind of like outline how I think like sure. the whole space looks. Okay. Like there's a space of um, of things people do uh, in pursuit of health that uh, uh, may not actually improve health. That's like a big category. And 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 I think like we should spend our time thinking about things we do in pursuit of health um, that may not improve health and explain pe- to people why they may not improve health or are known not to improve health um, so that people can do less of them and understand like what are the factors that lead to these things so that they can be better at thinking about medical evidence. I think that's super valuable, this whole space. And then I think, like, how does one spend one's time in this space, which is a huge space? Well, I think we have to prioritize things that are costly versus things that cost less. We have to prioritize things that are invasive and potentially harmful over things that are less invasive and cost less. We have to prioritize things that are reimbursed through societal mechanisms over things people pay out of their own pocket. I think that's a prioritization. Um, we have to prioritize things um, that are done in wide-scale fashion over things that are done uh, very small. We have to prioritize things with total aggregate spending higher than, than less spending. Um, and we have to prioritize things where you can teach these principles more um, eloquently than things that there's not much to teach because there's not much to even look at or consider. Um, so that okay, and then we have to prioritize things that have like potential health uh, or risk to others who are not um, consenting to the decisions over things that have no health risk to others who are not consenting to the decisions. So that's why I think like vaccines is like in a totally different category than some of these mm. other things. Vaccines have risks to others who are not consenting to those decisions in ways that jade eggs and cupping do not. Mm-hmm. Um, the only person who hurts themselves when they cup is the person who's cu- right. getting cupped and. And I put a, I'll put a little carve out for cupping, which is like, can you have cupping on your like underage child? And and that's a whole nother can of worms. So, you know, OK, sure. all right. I mean, I think maybe people should be restricted on what they can do to their children in pursuit of foolishness. Right. And I think they are. Mm-hmm. There are like, you know, provisions to that. But anyway, so that's a little carve out there. But like what you do to your own body with your own money um, that, you know, is a risk that you, you know, accept. I think that's got to be lower than what we all do with all our money uh, to other people. Um uh, under the proviso that this is something we should ensure, you know, so, okay, so that's how I kind of think about this space. And when you think about this space in that way, like things that come to the top for me are easy, which is like, um, you know, should should all these people getting all these implantable devices and are all these surgeries necessary and are all these things, and most of those things that come to the top are like things that we're doing, you know, in the canon of like Western um, allopathic medical tradition, like the tradition that you and I are in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I add one more thing to like how you think about this. What are the things that you should comment on? That should also be like uh, the thing that you are uniquely qualified for. And actually, Ja Ja Lu sent me this really great quote. I'm going to pull it up. This is from a book about like physics. 
um, that she, she took, took a screenshot and sent it to me, and I think it's probably because of this topic. Quote, I have found useful an adage from the physicist Hans Berth that I learned from my mentor, John Bacall, during my postdoc. I don't know how to say this guy's name, Bethe or Bath, said that one should concentrate on the problems for which one has a, quote, unfair advantage. This means that to make real progress on a well-studied problem, one needs to have an advantage that others don't have. At both Princeton and Harvard, I, ha- at, at both Princeton and Harvard, I had such an advantage. An unfair advantage can take different forms. It might be a new technique to apply to a problem, but more often a piece of technology, such as a novel detector, a way to make a measurement. So I think an unfair advantage here in this space is that if you're a doctor and you have subspecialty training, you have an unfair advantage to unpack whatever garbage is in that subspecialty because you have a really good technical understanding. Mm-hmm. So when I see these doctors who have spent years or whatever, fellowship trained or you know residency trained, having a practice in X, Y, or Z, and then they're out there complaining about cupping and I don't know what other foolishness <laughs> they want to complain about, acupuncture, um, it's you know it's not the best use of their talent and also cupping and acupuncture are things people do to their own bodies with their own money mm-hmm. which you know for better or worse we can all tell some you know ridiculous story about somebody who had mm-hmm. acupuncture and died but I mean realistically it's a low risk intervention mm-hmm. I, and anyone who thinks otherwise on average is like mistaken <laughs> I also think that like for people who combat pseudoscience as a side um, uh, they're very uh, anti-scientific in some ways I was seeing somebody was saying that um, what was it it was an example of uh, oh, I had a patient who drank uh, an herbal tea and had liver failure and died. Ergo, you know, it's not without risk. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, but of all the people who drink an herbal tea throughout a millennia, <laughs> what percent have had liver failure and died? It's got to be like infinitesimally low. I mean, what percent have SJS for when you prescribe Bactrim? It, I suspect it would be an order of magnitude higher. And yet, mm-hmm. look at how you're treating these risks. It's just a convenient that you're highlighting some anecdote, which is not really mm-hmm. evidence. Okay, anyway, so back to your question. Okay, so I think, so my first thing I want to say is there's a space. And the space of what you should prioritize you talking about has to be on like how common, how costly, how risky, um, whose money is being spent, because I think we do have different obligations to society than ourselves, and what's your unique advantage. Um, Along those lines of like unique obligations to other people's money. I also think it's interesting like how people who work on soft targets draw a distinction between, between things they think you can comment on and things you think you can't comment on. So for instance, mm-hmm. if you do put something on your body and it's mm-hmm. done in pursuit of health with mm-hmm. your own money, um, and uh, that's something they'll comment on. If you put something near your body, they might not comment on it. So for instance, uh, okay, somebody maybe near the body is like, there's some, there's some lines. So like, okay, okay, cupping, you'll comment on. Somebody waving their hands over you doing some magical thinking, you'll say that doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But if somebody buys an, a, an idol that they put on a shelf on the wall because they believe it wards off bad omens, mm-hmm. none of these skeptics are gonna tackle the idol on the wall. Mm-hmm. If somebody yeah. puts a statue on a bookshelf near their bed, None of these skeptics uh, will say that you, you shouldn't put statues near a bookshelf on your bed because one, it could fall and hit you in the head when you're sleeping. And in fact, in, in 19 diggity two, somebody got hit in the nose and they died. Um, you know, okay, mm-hmm. but they're not coming about statues, some a painting that somebody might buy because they believe it wards mm-hmm. off uh, spirits, um, ways people design their home that they mm-hmm. believe has some um, benefit. Um, feng shui. Feng shui, mm-hmm. you know, or and all sorts of, I mean, you know, I, I'm Indian. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of practices people do. 
do that they believe has right. some spiritual and or personal and that they're probably superstition they don't Absolutely. comment about those but if it touches the body near oh, the body is done by a shaman or healer now suddenly it's food for soft targetism mm-hmm. which is just a waste of money oh, that's time. interesting Okay, so that's, I, think, that's, I think that's another distinction that they don't see this little blind spot. But, okay, so back to your question about science communication, uh, which I think is a very important question. Okay, so uh, now that we've kind of, i kind of given you my view of like how you should be spending your time, uh, because you have a unique advantage to spend it at these top things, and the top things matter more. Um, now the question is like, well, do we need to educate the public about science? And the answer is like, oh my God, yes. Oh my God, they are so in desperate need of science education. And I, I don't want to pick on the public. I just want to pick on one subset of the public, which is uh, a very elite part of the public, Supreme Court justices. <laughs> so, okay, well, but why do I pick Supreme Court justices? Because they're like um, super well-educated people, mm-hmm. Ivy League trained, like usually from you know pedigreed institutions and may even come from family money or who knows what. They're like, you know, they're like the, the elites of society, right? <laughs> and they are scientifically illiterate just illiterate yeah. scientifically, and, and not even scientifically, like basic quantitative illiteracy. Uh, I was just listening to something where they were deciding about like, um, um, they were talking about like a way in which a case should be referred if there's a potential problem. Should it go to that same court that may have contributed to that problem, or should it go for on appeal? And they were arguing like what, and one of the parts of the argument was a pragmatic argument. Like what would be the most difficult from a pragmatic point of view? What would lead to the most administrative burden? And one side was saying that, look, the easiest thing to do is the court that um, made the error should correct the error because it's it's much more, it's faster to correct your own errors than have somebody else re-review the whole case and blah, blah, blah. And then this guy made this rebuttal where he was like, but let's be honest, in the 20 years that this has been a problem, there's only been three instances where it's been re-reviewed and the decision has been changed. Um, so if you, and many times they don't even accept the re-review, so they dismiss cursorily. And if you add up all the time, even if it's only like five minutes that it takes to like review your own actions, it'll add up more. And then he, you know, he kind of made the argument the other way. And I thought to myself, like, um, boy, if anyone on this group had any like numerical literacy, uh, mm-hmm. What they would do is you could make a simple um, a series of models. You could model you could model under a number of assumptions with sensitivity <laughs> analyses, and you could say like definitively like mm-hmm. path A leads to seventy five percent less administrative burden in ninety two percent of models with these parameters. You know, mm-hmm. and and you could really quantify it very nicely. That's something that you and I can do mm-hmm. because we're in a field that's very heavily quantitative. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a economist could do that. A policy person can do that. Probably somebody who works in Walmart on the back end, like thinking about how much business to buy they can do that but supreme court justices they cannot do that at all and 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 even the idea that this guy is like making this counter argument was like super provocative to them okay so okay so that's so anyway the reason i tell this anecdote is like everyone is guilty of like scientific illiteracy and and numerical illiteracy so we need people to know science you know know that better um but but your point is like how do we teach that and I, I personally believe that there's like a ceiling of like how much you can teach people about science when you uh, only talk about cupping. Because what are you going to say? Uh, you can say, oh, well, the mechanism of action is unsound. Or let's talk about like alkaline water mm-hmm. and reading all this thing. Like why, does, why shouldn't you drink alkaline water? I was like, I don't know. There's no good evidence that alkaline water will extend your life or make you feel better and improve any endpoint in any fashion and anything else. But somebody might take a different story and talk about like, oh, well, the body regulates pH in way X, Y, or Z. And if you add alkaline here to the lumen, it doesn't change the alkalinity of the blood or you know, whatever this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But that's not the reason why. <laughs> that's just like a really colorful reason why you wouldn't even want to waste your time running a study. But it's not the reason why you wouldn't do it. The reason why you wouldn't do it is that, uh, you know, 
that there's no credible evidence at the end of the day. Um, and let's say it really did have a plausible mechanism of action. Does that mean you should do it? No, because if a drug has a plausible mechanism of action, we'd still want to test it, right? right? So I guess my point there is that I'm, I'm not convinced that these kinds of soft targets actually allow you to teach the principles of science better. And then I'll go even further. Mm. I think even in medicine, not every field allows you to teach the principles of science better. Um, and one of the reasons I gravitate toward oncology is that you can really go after some high-level principles because we have so many randomized control trials, so much evidence. It's also why I like cardiology. You know, mm-hmm. I'm often commenting on cardiology. I, I really do like cardiology as a field because they have so much good studies. Right. So you can get in the finer points. You can talk about crossover. You can talk about control arms. You can talk about um, uh, whether or not you needed to be double blind. You can talk about ways in which, uh, even though it was a sham, sham might be unmasked. I mean, you could talk about some really kind of more erudite um, scientific principles. And so I guess if the goal is to educate the public about how to think better about science, I think sometimes the harder targets are better too because they give you more things to talk about. They let you push it to the next level. And when you start to think that way and you start to approach social problems, maybe political problems, I think you can think about it even more clearly than if you had just kind of bashed, I don't know, herbs in your tea or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess I'd say... I've had patients who are mu- in Oregon. You know, we have a lot of people who are mushroom foragers. Oh, um, guilty. <laughs> you're a forager too? Yes. My, uh, did so over fall break. Really? It was chanterelles. I mean, they're very delicious. They're delicious, right? <laughs> they're so good. And, and so I had a, I've had long conversations with a couple of my patients, but one in particular. And he was telling me about how he does this. And I was like, well, what about you could, of course, pick up a deadly mushroom. Yeah. And then he was like, oh, no, that'll never happen. And he was like, let me show you, doc. And the next week he came back and he gave me a book to read. And the book was like on how to pick like mushrooms that aren't deadly. Have you seen this book? <laughs> I, I've seen one book. It had a man with like a trumpet on it. It was very, it was very classic Portland. Classic. Or, yeah. The kind of person who's picking those mushrooms. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, so I read this book yeah. and, you know, and I guess what I would say is that um, if you are going to take the position that I need to counsel my patient about herbal tea, because there's some rate at which one person died mm-hmm. of what liver failure, right. drug-induced hepatic injury or something like mm-hmm. that from herbal tea. Do you also counsel them about mushroom foraging? You know, um, I mean, I, I mean, he, he, he knows yeah. that there's a risk. I mean, I asked him about it and he knows they're deadly mushrooms, yes. Yes. but he's accepting that risk. That's his choice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what does he benefit? He benefits from, I think, delicious, delicious. Uh, uh, <laughs> they're really good with butter. Yeah. Really good chanterelles with butter. Really and, yeah. I will say as yeah. a side note, uh, I think the poisonous, the one that'll kill you. My, my friend was telling me this is the Amanita. Yeah. The one we'll learn about yeah. It, yeah, yeah. In our step one books. But, um, but because of the, the color and the shape of the chanterelles, like other ones might give you like a tummy ache and stuff like that, but there's like a very distinct color, which is like something I never knew. For I chanterelle. Mean, for chanterelles. Yeah, so that it's so, so obvious it's when so you have, they, yeah. they glow, basically. Yeah. But I guess what's funny is because I mean, I was I was very nervous when I was like, I was excited to do the hunt, but I was like, I'm not going to eat it. I'll just watch, you know, because yeah. I was nervous and I've heard about all these stories too. But, you know, it's like, I don't know the faintest idea about all these different species and how... It could be a distinct thing. Like I understand that there's still a risk, but but at the same time, it it, it is funny that you say that there there are certain things that certain are, risks we don't comment. Yeah, and some yeah. risks we think are everything are 100 percent our business. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I was recently picking some berries, and you know, in Oregon, there's so many berries that I'm right. not unfamiliar with salmon berries and things like that. And hmm. anyway, but I, I took a gamble. I ate a couple. What do you? And <laughs> I can imagine somebody saying, "Oh, there's a there's a risk that that's a, not a good berry." I'm sure it is. <laughs> Okay, so, so I guess to the answer to your question is, I think like 
I mean, there's a formal way to do this as like value of information where you ask like in what fields and what topics is there a value to generating information, but you can apply the same principle to like what you should focus your critical energies on. There's only so much time in the world. So I also saw people say like, well, what if you do both hard and soft targets? I was like, well, yeah. What if you do both um, cardiology and oncology or neurosurgery and uh, and uh, and ENT? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's nobody's doing both. You know, there's only so much time in the day. You can only do yeah. so many things. You, yeah. What if you do internal medicine and surgery? I guess yeah, you could do both. Yeah, but you can't really do both. And just like that, you have to pick what you're gonna do. Um, and and I think science communication is important. Um, but it's also kind of maybe uh, even further that point, I think, isn't it like a little bit arrogant to think that the way in which we need to remedy that is a failure is a, is at the level of like, um, education in the media and on like social media. Mm-hmm. I think like the place we need to correct that is like, what yeah. about those 12 years you had these kids, uh, yeah. in your, in your school and yeah. you didn't teach them science. Yeah. And I have a lot of disagreements with how science is taught. I, I don't think. I think most of science education throughout my entire through high school was memorization of scientific models mm-hmm. and facts, yeah. and not understanding the experiments that led people to come to these models over other models. We yep. d- we barely got a taste of the experiments. Right. Yeah. And I feel like I I just remember a- AP chemistry, and I, I really loved it. And I like remember the the electromagnetic spectrum, and there's color and stuff like that, but. It was funny because every unit was so discreet and there just was no link or context. Mm-hmm. And I think I think what's interesting about science, the way I feel like we should approach it is, you know, you know, with this like humility of like we are plopped, like us dumb little freshmen, like we're plopped into this like sea of expanding knowledge. You know, like but there's and we still don't know things. And I, yeah. I feel like we really brush over that aspect of this this need for humility and this need for like, but how could you even possibly begin to like do these sorts of things and, and, and like look at make my, like, you know, look at atoms or how could you possibly even conceive of like germ theory and stuff like that. And it's, it's not so much like you can teach it as a history lesson, but I think it's like to really press students to be like, how would you do it? You know, like how would you even, you know, I think some of these things are such a given that like we'll look at a picture of a cell and then we'll kind of dive in that it, it almost feels this, this, there's a familiarity to it that makes us not even realize how, how much of this information that we take for granted or that like there's other types of science and other types of experimentation mm-hmm. that we don't even like that we don't even touch in like these types of, uh, I don't know, high school science curriculum that helps you make sense of the information around you in your world. Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't know. just like you, I think that's why if we're going to loop it back to like superstition <laughs> or like belief systems is mm-hmm. like, I think people need a system to navigate the world. Of course, yeah. Right? You yeah. know, it's it's not entirely unreasonable that, you know, if, like, if you don't have that, then what what do you hold on to? Like, right. what? how do you get up in the morning and not feel like you're going to fall off the bus or, you know, eat a poisonous mushroom? Right. Or, you know, you need something to, like, give you that belief system, right? And so you can do that with science, but you have to, I think, treat it in, in a way that it's, like, not just, A, this, like, intellectual thing that only certain people can discover but it really is a process of of assurance you know what i mean yeah. of being like this is true this is trying to figure true. it out and yeah. i guess i'd say like the only time like you really see science i think is in the years after my training till today mm-hmm. i've seen 10 years of like science when you follow something over time right. you, you you yeah. you read what people were say mm-hmm. you talk to people you know what they thought then you see experiments that may you know go against what they think mm-hmm. um 
that's like when you really get a sense of science. And what you get in the textbooks, I think, you know, when I was in 10th grade, uh, you know, I would say everything before maybe ninth or 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think, I don't even know what that is. That's not science. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a memorization of facts or factoids. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I saw something, int- you know, I remember when we were in like grade school, we like memorized like the distance from the earth to the sun and, oh, and all these kinds of simple yeah, things. Yeah. Um, and then I saw recently somebody on Twitter was like, you know, um, instead of memorizing these things, it's fun to like understand why. And then so he was like, he was like, during a solar eclipse, um, the tree acts as a pinhole camera and it casts like a shadow of the sun, mm-hmm. like little shadows of the yeah, sun. Yeah. And so he says, using the only the measurements you can take from the tree to the, 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 the cast image, um, what's the density of the sun? So he's like, oh, you can measure how wide the sun is. You can measure the distance to the mm-hmm. tree. Um, you can do some simple ratios. And he's like, apply Kepler's law of planetary motion and blah, blah, blah. And so he's like <laughs> doing all this solving. And mm-hmm. then like he ultimately got to this part where he figured out the density of the sun multiplied by the cosmologic constant G uh, mm-hmm. is uh, equal to, you know, whatever. And so he could solve <laughs> for the density of the sun. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, well, how did you get G? Like, where did that, where did you get that from? He's like, well, I had to look that up. I was like, you had to look that up? Then you might as well looked up the density of the sun. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is not... <laughs> I was like, what did you do? I was like, you might as well just look up the density of the sun directly if you're going to look up one of these kooky numbers. But I mean, to me, so at least I think it was better than I think like what we get in science education, but it's still not very satisfying. Right. To me, like what's satisfying is when you understand that like, oh, like um, the year is 1950, whatever. Um, and uh, we know that if you dissolve DNA, uh, you get these four bases and it's in these ratios. And these two ratio, and these two are always kind of similar ratioed. And these two are also similar ratioed. And, and how do we go from that to know it, to like, to figuring out the structure and so, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, the shape of the molecule. Mm -hmm. Like, so what are the, what were the pieces they had at the time and how did they kind of do it? Mm -hmm. That to me is kind of interesting. And, and, you know, like, how did we figure out that DNA is what carries the hereditary material and not proteins? Right. right? Mm -hmm. So that's an elegant, that's, those are elegant experiments. So when you understand like what people knew at the time, what tools they had at the time, Mm -hmm. what was the question they sought to answer and how did they think of answering it? That's science. Like to see like, oh, that's such a clever experiment. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're going to, of course you're going to separate these two and inject the mouse with this and that's how you're going to figure it out. You know, like that's clever. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't think it's taught that way. I think it's taught in a much more, even in medical school, a much more memori- memorizing way. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but back to the question of like, well, how do we communicate to the public? I think, you know, we have to revamp the entire science education, get people to think scientifically and numerically. Um, maybe that means they don't need to memorize all the things they memorize, but they need to think like, oh, if given something that like people might say, how do I evaluate this critically? Uh, that would go a long way. But I, I think the idea that like the soft targets is the best way to teach scientific principles, I think that to me is kind of hollow because there's not much science to teach uh, because there's no mm-hmm. studies to even talk about. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, should I swallow apple cider vinegar, a cup to help dyspepsia? Mm-hmm. You could have a lengthy sermon about um, how pH is regulated in the stomach, but that's not really the answer mm-hmm. because if somebody did a randomized control trial and apple cider vinegar did lower dyspepsia against uh, a saline solution with a tint of apple cider vinegar, mm-hmm. um, then we would might recommend such a thing, you know? Right, right, uh, right. So that's not really the answer. The answer is yeah. that it lacks that conclusive study. Mm-hmm. And undermining or furthering the pathophysiology is just really kind of whether or not you would run the study. I so I don't know. I guess, I, am, I guess that's how I think about that issue. I'm also, I also note with interest of how angry people get when I was commenting about that. <laughs> I think people... Yeah have a strong identity with being a, a quote-unquote skeptic debunker. Uh, that identity is threatened when they hear somebody criticize them. And I'm criticizing them in a way they're not used to being criticized. They're used to, of course, fringe elements saying, you know, the opposite. But they're not used to somebody who 
is focusing on hard targets, saying that they, what they're doing is a waste of their their true talents and skills. So I think it really does hurt. Um, and I think it's it also reveals that like I think you have you have no matter what we do, we have to separate our identity from what we do. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody were to come and show some surrogate endpoints are valuable in cancer, shouldn't make me feel bad about myself as a person. I mean, right? right? Yeah. I mean, I have to separate these two, and right. I don't think it would. Um, because, <laughs> I mean, I hope it wouldn't, but, um, but they'd have to do a lot to persuade me. But I think we have to keep these two things separate, the things that we have like professionally interested in and like our sense right. of self-worth. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess to respond to that, um, it, it's one of those things where it's like, especially because I feel like you are, there's, you know, there's not a thousand Vinay facades ar- around, I guess. And so, you know, like you have to be more, especially when they're doing things the system has like these things are not being checked. You have to like vocalize that. And that's the reason for your arguments and for this whole body of work that you've been doing. But if there was a drug that saved people's lives, you know what I mean? And like, and it was the circuit endpoint was sufficient to, you know, predict that then sure. Like that's great. Like everybody wins, you know what I mean? Like it's, I guess, I guess I would just say like, that's a situation where it doesn't, I guess, detract from the contributions you've made because it's like what you've, what you're doing is helping people also think critically as well. And so when you can discern a good trial from a bad one, that's a win. You yeah. know what I mean? That's the win. Not not to be like, oh, but I want to make sure that no drug ever gets approved ever because... Of surrogate endpoints, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. like not the point, right? Yeah, the right. Point. The point is like, if you want to use it, it's got to be like a good surrogate, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, and I guess I, I also think, I mean, along these lines of like, I saw some article recently that was like about the cardiologist and this randomized trial that they bungled the endpoint of MI. And then somebody was like, um, you know, uh, we should remind ourselves that cardiologists do a lot of good because we live in a time where it's easy to beat up on cardiologists. And I was like, take it easy, man. Nobody, nobody, nobody's disputing the fact that cardiologists <laughs> doing good. And then I said like, oh, I should, um, I'll add cardiologists to my list of like um, marginalized and threatened populations and groups. Uh, I was like, should it be number two under most marginalized or, or number one, you know, car- I mean, come on. Cardiologists still enjoy one of the most exalted positions in society. No one thinks they're all up to trouble and if somebody is critical of how cardiologists did one study that doesn't mean you know as a cardiologist I just can't imagine being offended similarly you know if somebody found that like oncologists prescribe more costly drugs when they receive percent markup mm-hmm. which I'm which is probably true I mean it's probably true I'm not going to be offended on behalf of oncologists I don't right. I don't identify with that it doesn't affect me personally mm-hmm. um, and and similarly like if somebody came along and said you know ABVD for Hodgkin's is no better than you know mm-hmm. whatever AVD or AD or something you know something I'm not going to be offended because uh, that I'll be grateful for that information I don't take right. it personally right. so I think there has to be that kind of separation mm-hmm. but those are my thoughts about this, this soft versus hard, hard target debate, which was just a fierce debate mm-hmm. uh, that um, uh, that uh, <laughs> that uh, continued to ping my notifications days and days later. <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of vigorous, vigorous debate, which was was interesting to read. I'll, I'll admit. Yeah. Oh, and then the last thing I should say is that a colleague of mine said that. Um, well, uh, one of the things you're faulting people who spend all their time talking about soft targets for is that um, they are um, speaking to a group of people who will be unable to be persuaded on the topic, and thus the efforts are futile. And um, and uh, and and then he said, uh, and similarly, you are telling them that they should focus on hard targets, and they will never do that, and they'll be unable to be persuaded. 
So you yourself are guilty <laughs> of wasting energies. And I was like, well, damn you. Well played. <laughs> and then, but then the, my response was like, mm-hmm. like uh, I was like, okay, well, I guess that's fair. But I guess the reason I did it is not because of these folks, because I think these mm-hmm. folks are unlikely to be changed. But right. I, I want to articulate to like somebody coming up in training who faces the choice of what they want to focus on that they should not focus on this and they should focus on mm-hmm. what actually matters. So I, that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. Didn't you write an art, Medscape article about that or something like that? What did I say? Where, where you were saying something like the point of the argument is not... Ah, uh, yes, change to the like, audience's mind, not yeah. the person. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the point. But maybe he was a little bit right that I was a little guilty <laughs> that they would see some reason there. And then, and then somebody else said like, oh, well, what if you were to show that, um, that I had a smoking cessation strategy in my office and that, you know, I spent all this time on it, but it didn't help anyone. Should I really not do it? And to which my reply was, uh, yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if it, I mean, the question is like, yes, if it's a, if it's an ineffective smoking cessation strategy, yes, you should not do it. Yeah. And if it's an effective smoking cessation strategy, yes, you should do it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to spend years of your life doing an ineffective strategy, you're losing opportunity cost and you're taking away appointment time that a person might want to use to talk mm-hmm. about what matters to them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, even for something as no-brainer as you shouldn't smoke, which of course is not the same thing as you shouldn't cup because the risks of smoking are very different than the risks of cupping. Mm-hmm. And anyone who doesn't see that, I think, is misguided. Um, um, but uh, the principle is the same, that yeah, the office time is precious. And, it, and if there was evidence that what you're doing in the office time doesn't improve outcomes, it should be abandoned in pursuit of things that do. Or if there's no evidence that anything improves outcomes, it should be the things that should be prioritized are uh, things that people wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that can be anything from how they depression to, um, you know, an ache in their side or something like that. I mean, people have lots of right. concerns that there's just not enough time because, you know, we're too busy trying to check off all the boxes. Yeah. All right. On that positive note, <laughs> I guess we'll turn to this week's interview. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Skype with Dr. Ellie Murray. Dr. Murray is an assistant professor of medicine at the Boston University, and I believe in the School of Public Health. Is that right, Dr. Murray? That's right. And Dr. Murray is well known to uh, listeners of this podcast as uh, Epi Ellie on Twitter, um, which I think is a very appropriate name um, because uh, Dr. Murray is, is the expert in epidemiology. And uh, to give you a little bit of background about Dr. Murray, um, she did her undergraduate training at McGill University in uh, Canada. She did an MPH um, from Columbia University. Um, And then she went to Harvard, where she did her doctoral degree in uh, epidemiology, but also has a master's in biostatistics. Uh, She stayed on with the group of Miguel Hernan and colleagues um, at the the Harvard Medical School for her postdoc. And then she has recently transitioned to faculty um, at BU, and, and they're lucky to have her. And I guess I would say that um, one of the things that I, I think about when I think about Dr. Murray is that uh, although she hasn't been on Twitter long, um, you know, uh, she is incredibly well known on Twitter um, and for good reason, I think, because I think she is incredibly gifted at taking very complex epidemiology um, concepts and explaining them to people um, at a very simple level. And I think that that's the hallmark of both someone who's a really good teacher, just gifted at that, as well as somebody who really understands the concept. So I'm delighted to have her on. I'm really glad she agreed. Um, and hopefully it'll be educational to me as well. But so thank you so much, Dr. Murray, for coming on the podcast. 
thank you so much for inviting me. I think this is going to be really fun and uh, also very nice things you said about me. So I hope that I don't uh, let down the listeners. No, I know you're going to live up to it because I also <laughs> listened to your podcast, which is uh, the cleverly titled uh, Casual uh, Inference uh, rather than Causal Inference. And I, and I think like, you know, what you're getting at is, um, you know, we're going to talk about uh, epidemiology and biostatistical principles to infer causality, um, but we're going to do it casually. We're going to do it using very simple colloquial language so people can understand. Um, is is that your motivation? Uh, what do you hope to accomplish in the podcast? Yeah, exactly. Our, we're kind of hoping to reach basically everyone who does any kind of data analysis where they're attempting to use data to make decisions. Um, because really, whenever you want to use data to make decisions, you're trying to understand what the likely causal effect of your decision is going to be. Right? If you do X, what will happen? Um, and so, you know, there are people in epidemiology doing this every day, but there's also data scientists working at companies, uh, biostatisticians are doing this, uh, economists are doing this, ecologists are doing this, um, doctors are doing this in the clinic too. Every time they treat a patient, they're making a decision that has some kind of implicit sort of assumption about what the causal effect will be. Um, and so, you know, hopefully we want to base those on some those decisions on some evidence. And so, Really, the goal of the podcast is to help anyone who's making a decision based on numbers to understand either how to do data analysis well that gets them a good number to make their decision mm -hmm. on or how to read the literature and kind of evaluate other people's um, work and see can they really rely on that information. That's a really nice way to put it, which is that um, there, there are all sorts of studies we read in the literature from descriptive studies that kind of show us how the world works. But the moment you get in the realm where you have to make decisions, change your behavior going forward, you are asking causal questions and you want to rely on causal data. And that spans everything. That's really well put. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of insight listeners uh, 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 can get if they listen to your podcast, Casual Inference. And that's the kind of insights that, that I've grown accustomed to uh, in just four episodes that I've had the chance to tune into. <laughs> Um, okay, well, I wanted to, you know, I have a lot of stuff I want to cover with you, but I hear, here's one of the things I've always wondered about. Um, uh, uh, I, I kind of want to get a sense of, you know, like, what is it, how did you end up going into epidemiology? I mean, I guess I, one question I want to start with is like, you know, what was your undergraduate major? And, you know, epidemiology is not the sort of thing that I think a lot of people are familiar with as undergraduates. Um, when did you discover it was out there? And then, and then I have a follow-up question on that. But I guess that's my first question is, you know, how did you get into epidemiology? Um, yeah, so I in undergrad, I certainly did not know what epidemiology was or that it existed at all. Um, my undergrad major was biology, and um, it was so I sort of mostly focused on kind of ecological um, not it wasn't entirely ecology, but a lot of um, ecological classes. I was kind of at that time, you know, sort of thinking maybe I would go and kind of work for Parks Canada and be like mm. a you know forest ranger, <laughs> which uh, obviously I still didn't dream happen. of that. I still dream of that kind of job. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was like when I graduated from my biology degree, it was like right around the time the Canadian government had like laid off like something like thirty percent of their biologists, and so the market was just like flooded with biologists mm -hmm. needing jobs to work in the field, and um, so I ended up um, working at. Um, lab in Illinois. Um, oh. I worked in a grasshopper lab for a while doing developmental biology, a fruit fly lab um, that was also developmental biology, and then ended up in a cell culture lab 
um, looking at like a human uh, sodium ion transporter. Hmm. In Chicago. And, <laughs> yes. And uh, so I sort of, you know, tried all a whole bunch of different kind of lab situations. And so you were a card carrying biologist doing laboratory science. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. running Western blots and changing cell culture plates and everything. But it, you know, in the end, I, I really decided I didn't enjoy the fact that, you know, when you're working in the lab, you have to work to the schedule of whatever your uh, model organism is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the grasshoppers have mm-hmm. to be fed mm-hmm. or the fruit flies have to be bred <laughs> mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. you have to go in and you have to do it. Mm-hmm. If the experiment's going to take 14 hours, you have to be there for 14 hours. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then you get mystery stains on your clothes, and I don't know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, no, I just kind of decided I'd had enough. Of yeah, <laughs> I, I think a, I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast, because for many of us who go into medicine, we've had to sort of endure similar things, and <laughs> we often discover it's not right for us. The lab is a unique place; it's only right for some people. So I totally yeah. get where you're coming from. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so then so, I, yeah. I kind of decided, okay, I'm going to try something new, and I, I basically ended up just sort of I would on my way home from work, stop in at like the bookstore and kind of look through the science section for books that looked interesting. Mm-hmm. And I happened upon some epidemiology books and uh, that was sort of it. I was hooked. Uh, so. No way. You got into epidemiology <laughs> by picking up a book? Really? <laughs> wow. And so you were just reading and what book was it, if I might ask? Um, so I think the one that really sold me um, was it's called uh, em- Emerging Viruses by Dr. Stephen Morse, who's at Columbia. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know, I read that and that was sort of, that's a little bit more textbooky. And then I read a couple of those like virus hunters of the CDC or whatever uh-huh, type books. Uh-huh. And like, this is really cool. Um, so I kind of, uh, on a whim applied to Columbia for an MPH. So I thought, okay, well, if I want to do this, I'll start with an MPH. I'll kind of see if it really is interesting. And I ended up getting to work. Um, Dr. Morse was my thesis advisor for my master's thesis. And he was amazing. And uh, so I was, I was hooked after that for sure. Oh, wow. But it seems like that's even that is kind of like a hybrid between what you were doing, which was ecological biology as well and moving into the epidemiology space. Um, because a lot of the virus hunters do go to sort of different parts of the world um, and try to get a sense of what potential uh, epidemics uh, and pandemics might emerge. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, that was sort of why it, it resonated so much with me, and especially the infectious disease part at first, because it was sort of Basically, it's sort of human ecology mm-hmm. and the ecology of all the things that live inside of and on our bodies and, and cause end up causing disease or, or not. Um, and so you can kind of if you, you can kind of think of it in the same framework as you think about, you know, forest ecology. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of translates well, I think, from what I would had as my previous background. Yes. And so um, I guess I'm not super familiar with the Columbia MPH um, program, um, but I'm a little familiar with MPH programs because I did an MPH at Hopkins. And at Hopkins, um, you have a couple of options. You can do uh, biostatistics at the different levels, uh, even including the PhD level, but then a very sort of below that, just a very practical level for clinicians and researchers. Uh, epidemiology, there's a couple different levels, and one of the tracks is the sort of similar coursework to what the PhD students in epidemiology would do. Uh, I have a feeling that, and I, but I'm wondering, did you gravitate towards, uh, you know, at Columbia to sort of doing the epidemiology training that the doctoral students were also doing? Um, yeah, so at Columbia, it's uh, the MPH there is a two-year, two-year program? Mm-hmm. Two-year program. Um, and so, 
The first year is sort of um, very introductory. So there's sort of a what, you know, what is public health? What are, what are the sort of the big questions we want to think about in epidemiology? And so like the intro epi class is very focused on like thinking about, uh, or at least when I when I was there, I've actually heard they've completely revamped their curriculum mm -hmm. now. So it, it maybe it's different, but, you know, sort of very like, what is public health? What are the big sort of social justice issues, environmental health issues, et cetera. Um, and then the second year is sort of more similar than to what the doctoral students would take. So I was in the epidemiology track. And so I took a lot of biostats classes, a lot of epi classes. Um, yeah. And but you, and you were, and you were very good at those classes, I would bet. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I, so, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't want to make you, you know, <laughs> have to deal with that, but I mean, I guess, because that's what I'm getting. I guess what I want to know is like, when you started taking epidemiology, did you feel like like, this is what my brain is meant to do. Like, like I can just like, did it come super easy to you? And the concepts were like, I like what, like, did it feel very natural when you took those classes? That's what I want to get. At. Um, yes and no. I think it was sort of like, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I also kind of, it kind of felt like, you know, I, because it's what I want to be doing, then like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I sort of, you know, I think in undergrad, I didn't really have great study skills. But when I started doing my MPH, I was kind of like, oh, now I like I know that I want to learn this and I want to be able to build on it later. And so like I spent a lot of time like getting better study skills and things like that. I see. And so like putting a lot more energy into it because it just felt like the right thing to be working on. But do you feel like um, did you have to work hard to master the concepts of epidemiology or did it come naturally? I mean, I think there's sort of some some parts yes and some parts no, I think. Um, there's always going to be parts that are tricky. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, I think, I feel like I worked harder um, in my master's program than I had in undergrad. And, you know, and certainly my doctoral program was not easy at all. And I worked my butt off. Really? <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was sort of like it, the part that came naturally was the interest in like spending the hours and hours it took. I to see, I see. Really really get it to click and and wanting to be at a place where it was like a fluent second language you know rather than just sort of like okay I'm gonna like learn what I need for the test and do the test and like move on to my next thing which yes. was sort of my high school or undergrad kind of approach to things yeah I think that's that's what shows is that like when you talk about this stuff it it feels as if um it, it 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 feels as if you're you're so comfortable with the concept. It's like it's like a fluent second language. Yeah, that's well put. Um, okay, so so that's how you you finished at uh, at, at at Columbia. And uh, did you immediately go into the doctorate program at at Harvard? Um, no, I actually I worked for a little while um, okay. at. It was actually a a pretty cool. Um, it was a Canadian government agency or BC like provincial government agency that was specifically designed to look at. Um, its charter was to look at occupational health issues for healthcare workers. Mm. Um, and it had been created because of collective bargaining between the nurses union and the province when they were like setting up, you know, a couple of maybe I think 10 years before mm -hmm. when they'd been like doing some union negotiations. Um, and that was a really interesting, um, fun experience. I, I did lots of interesting work. I learned a lot about occupational health that I didn't know about, mm -hmm. but I also kind of really solidified that I wanted to have the freedom to kind of follow where the questions took me um, as they arose rather than just kind of following someone else's research agenda because um, there we were very much set to 
you know, the nurses union would sort of say, well, we have this issue and we want it to be looked into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that would kind of set the research agenda for the year. And so um, I kind of wanted to have more freedom that. So then that's when I decided I would get a doctorate. I see. And then um, when you decided to go to Harvard, um, did you do so knowing that you're going to work with Miguel Hernan or were you still sort of unclear that causality would be what's right for you? Yeah, no, I actually, I applied to the infectious disease program. I see, right, um, of course, and, naturally. Um, yeah, I was in the infectious disease concentration in the epi department um, for, for my first two years, and I had started on a, a project. Um, but in the spring of my second year, that's when, um, at Harvard, when you take the written qualifying exam. Yeah. And so we basically spend, like, the whole spring semester studying for that. And I, I really noticed you know, whenever I got together with my study group, you know, it would be like some things would be like kind of a slog to go through, like, you know, what is the difference between, you know, the standardized morbidity ratio and the yes. standardized mortality ratio or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, oh, I don't know, this is horrible. And then, you know, then we'd get to a question where we're like discussing like the ins and outs of some DAG and I'd be all like animated and excited. And I was like, wow, it kind of paying attention to what's going on with me. Like, it's clear that I really like this stuff. Um, and so then I, I approached Miguel and just said, you know, I'm really interested in this and I'd like to switch into the causal group. And, and he was open to it. Yeah. And my understanding is that Miguel is a very gifted teacher as well, uh, like oh, you. Yeah. And, and, uh, and one of his uh, sort of, I don't know, career accomplishments has been that uh, Jamie Robbins, who's had a number of these ideas for many years um, and is a very bright person, um, uh, Miguel was sort of the translator of a lot of these ideas to make them more mainstream and make them more digestible for people who might not be as smart as Dr. Robbins. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think absolutely. Miguel is really, really excellent communicator and really great at at sort of um, framing things in a way that people that kind of coming from all different places can understand. So I definitely learned a lot about communicating these methods from him for from sure. Him, I see. So I guess maybe now I'll, I'll ask you just a couple of questions about like epidemiology, and then we can come back to sort of talking about your path in it. Um, but these are some of the concepts in epidemiology that, that I myself struggle to explain to other people. And so I figured, since I have your time, <laughs> who better to get than somebody to explain it uh, better? But these are concepts that I've struggled, I struggle to explain myself. Um, and I, I think it's because I understand it but can't explain it, but I hope maybe I don't understand it. You know, <laughs> you never know. You have to wonder when you can't really explain it well. And, and, but yet, I think it's something that my audience will be very interested in, in hearing from you. Okay, okay, so one, and I know you did this on your podcast, so listeners can also <laughs> tune in to, I believe, Sherry Rose episode three. Um, but um, uh, is, is, is a collider. Um, so so maybe, maybe we need to back up. Maybe we need to talk a little bit about what is a DAG and how do you think about DAGs. But then let's talk a little bit about colliders. And, and I know you have a really great example about a collider. So maybe I'll, I'll turn the floor to you. You know, okay. how, yeah, if you had to explain to somebody what a collider is, uh, how would you do it? Um, yeah, so I think um, we can kind of explain that in the context of a DAG or, or not in the context of a DAG. Okay. I do think yeah. DAGs are a tool that makes it sort of easier to visualize. Certainly if I was, you know, if this was a video a vlog <laughs> right. or something, it would, I would have for sure be pulling out the whiteboard and drawing a DAG. Um, but so for those listeners who are not familiar with what a DAG is, um, it stands for directed acyclic graph. And it's basically a tool for visualizing the relationships between variables um, in your study, not in your study. So it, inc- it can include variables that you don't have information on. Um, 
that helps, you know, kind of follows a set of rules about how information is allowed to flow around that graph that then helps you think through the potential for bias when you're designing a study, when you're designing an analysis um, of an existing study. And a simple and, DAG could just be like two objects. Yeah. So, I mean, the simplest possible DAG would have two nodes and it may or may not have an arrow between those nodes. Right. So, um, the sort of directed acyclic part means that all of the arrows kind of go in a single direction. You don't mm -hmm. have any arrows with two heads mm -hmm. and that it's only a, really a DAG if, um, you sort of, if you trace arrows like in the direction of from the tail to the head, you never could trace a path all the way around and get back to somewhere you started. You can't loop, so you can't go backwards. Exactly. So, you know, the, the arrows should flow from cause to effect in the direction of time. And because things in the future can't cause things in the past. So you um, think, so you think. <laughs> until we have time machines. Right, yeah. um, then uh, no arrows should go towards the past. So would you be fair to say a DAG is sort of a, a visual representation of, uh, of what causal pathways you believe exist and what you think is happening over time? Um, yeah, so the, the strongest assumption in the DAG is really actually the absence of arrows. Mm. So it's really about which causal pathways you believe don't exist. Mm. Um, but yeah, you can kind of think about it as a visual way of representing your assumptions um, about the causal relationship and what happens over time. Um, but then it also has this thing that it it's linked very um, closely to sort of mathematical prob probability statements. And so drawing a DAG you know, if you draw out a DAG following the rules of the DAG and you give that to someone who understands those, the sort of background, they can then see from your DAG exactly what mathematical equation you should be estimating. I see. Because the rules of the DAG are, are equivalent to certain mathematical rules. So let's say, hypothetically, I have the three nodes in a DAG. One is whether or not you wear a yellow shirt. One is your serum cholesterol. And one is whether or not you have a heart attack. How, okay. how would you draw the arrows in that? Okay, so um, probably we would expect that there might be a arrow from serum cholesterol to heart attack. Mm -hmm. um, as a lay person, that's my understanding of cholesterol. I think that's right, um, yeah, yeah. And so we would have an arrow from serum cholesterol to heart attack. Um, but we would probably not assume that wearing a yellow shirt is a cause of any of those other variables or is caused by those variables. Unless, I don't know, perhaps the hospital has some rule where people who have a heart attack are then put into like a yellow robe or something. <laughs> so you know that they have yeah, a heart no. attack. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you're right. Um, Good point. Yeah. As long as you have to make sure the gowns in the hospital aren't yellow, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Um, so, but, yeah, but so, I guess what you'd say is like, and I think like 99 out of a hundred people would say the exact same thing sort of, right. If they thought about this. Right. So right. in some cases they can kind of be like, we'll have a lot of consensus about what the cause or at least the possible causal pathways are. Right. And um, I think, you know, as, as you say, the point with the hospital is that ca uh, the causal DAG can be really situationally specific. So mm. if we're talking about a hospital where all of the hospital gowns are yellow, then someone who's wearing a yellow shirt and has cholesterol, high cholesterol, is probably, they're probably in the data because they had a heart attack and that's why you found them, right? They're not probably... Most people don't wear yellow shirts. Right. So if they're wearing a yellow shirt, they probably, the, the reason they're in your data is because they had a heart attack. You're going to turn and this so into a collider example. Arrow, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so actually that arrow could exist, yeah. right? And yeah. then in that case, um, because, exactly, because having high cholesterol is a cause of being having a heart attack. 
Um, and well, I guess actually in this case, having a heart attack is a cause of the yellow shirt. Correct. So yeah. it's so actually it's an, not it, a collider. So it's, it's an, an intermediary. A heart attack is an intermediary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I see. Right. Um, that's yeah. No, that's excellent. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, that's just because you're you're thinking like three steps ahead of where I was thinking. I'm just making up some, <laughs> some simple example. But I, I guess I was trying to illustrate the point that like sometimes it is clear what's not in a causal pathway, and sometimes it is clear. Um, right. Okay. Um, and so DAGs are very like a useful way of thinking about this, and it's a useful way of sort of putting on paper what some of your silent assumptions might be in a study. Because we all make DAGs in our mind, we may not always write them out, right? Like, uh, and yeah. so, some of how we get into trouble is because we don't write it out. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, I don't want to use a DAG because I'm not making assumptions. <laughs> you're, you're still making all the same assumptions. Yeah. And a lot of times, um, if you're not using a DAG, you're making a lot more assumptions than you would if you use the DAG. Because as you say, the DAG forces you to put your assumptions down on paper and you start to see things like, oh, well, I was assuming that none of the hospitals in my study have yellow colored gowns. Mm -hmm, um, and maybe mm -hmm. that's not the right assumption. And maybe I need to go collect some data on that and see whether that arrow um, exists. Because, you know, if, if it does, then... Um, you know, for example, using yellow yellow colored shirts as like a selection criteria for controls wouldn't wouldn't work. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so so that's a DAG in a nutshell, and I think interested people will have to go and like pull up some DAGs <laughs> and look at them. Um, okay, so then what is what is a collider? Okay, so a collider um, we can think about in the context of the DAG because it's a a variable where two or more arrowheads meet, um, and so one thing that's important to remember about colliders is that um, a variable can be a collider on one path and not a collider on another path. So the collider is really, we're just talking about the path that goes from arrowhead to arrowhead. So between two arrowheads that meet at a node. Mm -hmm. um, and so colliders are tricky because basically all the normal rules that we think about when we think about things like confounding, i.e., if we have a confounder, we should control for it. If it's not a confounder, we don't need to control for it. Mm -hmm. All those rules are reversed when we're talking about colliders. Mm -hmm. um, so the sort of classic um, collider yeah. example yeah. is something like loss to follow up from okay. your study. Okay. So if you're doing you know, a randomized trial mm -hmm. um, and people in one treatment arm are more likely to be lost to follow up than the other treatment arm. Yes, okay. Then you're going to have an arrow from treatment arm to loss to follow-up. Now, it's possible that one of the reasons people get lost to treatment is that um, they're having symptoms. Right. Uh, they're getting sicker. And so their symptoms are also a predictor of loss to follow-up. Right. And their symptoms are a predictor of the outcome, say right. it's mortality. Right. Um, and so in that case... Last to follow up has two arrowheads going into it. So there's right. an arrow from trial arm and there's an arrow from, you know, underlying health. Right, stats. right, right. Um, and so two arrowheads meet at last to follow up. And the problem with last to follow up is that we, by definition, have to condition on it. Right. Because we only have information on people who are not lost to follow up. Correct, correct, right? right. We only have one value for that variable. And so last to follow up is, is, potentially a collider mm -hmm. if if there's this scenario where two arrowheads meet there and it's always if it's a collider it's always an open collider mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you, you must condition on it by definition 
Right. So like right. an example would be like we do a randomized controlled trial of a cancer medicine versus sugar pill. And right. uh, it turns out um, uh, the primary endpoint of the study is what happens on your scans. And to get scanned, you got to show up to clinic. And right. it turns out 20% of the people taking sugar pill don't show up to clinic um, because maybe they feel sick and they don't want to come in. Uh, but on the treatment arm, 40% of people don't show up to clinic because the treatment's got some side effects and maybe there'd be 20% of people who would have shown up to clinic, but they're not showing up to clinic because they're taking the pill that gives them side effects and they feel so crummy they don't want to come. So now you have uh, a situation where there's more loss to follow up on one arm than the other. And um, that loss to follow-up is potentially related to someone's physical state, the people who are more frail, vulnerable, who can get pushed over by taking this toxic cancer drug are more likely to be lost to follow-up. And you have a situation where there is a collider and it is open. You want to talk about what it means to be open? Right. So what this means is that when the collider is open, what will happen is even if your treatment was completely ineffective. Yes. So let's say the only thing this treatment does is make you nauseous. Yes. It doesn't have any impact on your on your cancer. Um, and so if you're someone who already had, you know, some frailness or um, uh, stomach problems or something like that, where, you know, a little bit of extra nausea is really just going to make it impossible for you to go about your day. Yes. Right. Then. So those people are more likely to be lost to follow up. And then. Maybe because they're frailer, et cetera, maybe their their scan, had they not been lost to follow-up, their scan would have looked worse. Yes. Um, and so in this case, if we're thinking about, you know, who has, um, who are the people that have scans that look bad? Yes. It could be because they were frail. Yes. Um, or it could be because they were so it could be because they were frail and they're in the treatment arm, which is why they get lost to follow up. Yes, exactly. Or yeah, yeah. they could just be an average person in the other arm, which doesn't have the side effect and people are just randomly lost to follow up. Yes. Right. And so what we end up seeing then, um, and this example is a little bit more complicated than the, the example we did on our, our podcast. But what you end up seeing is that in the treatment arm, it will look like um, the people who are lost to follow up will be more likely to be frail, will be more likely to have the Event. bad outcome. Yes, yes. Right. And then um, th that means the people that remain are going to be the people who are less likely to be frail. Right. Yes. And so the treatment would look beneficial in this scenario, even if the treatment useless. does nothing except make you throw up. That's so, so fascinating. And it's really kind of, I'm kind of grateful that you picked this as an example, because uh, it's, it's actually something I think is real. Um, and that, you know, uh, with a colleague of mine who's an epidemiologist in Drexel, Usama Bilal, who I think knows you. Uh, he speaks very highly about you. Um, but everyone knows you these days because I know you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we kind of probe this. So, I mean, I'll give you an example, which was there's a drug called Everlimus um, that's used in breast cancer. And it's exactly the kind of drug that you speak about. It's a drug that certainly has side effects, makes people feel nauseous, weak, et cetera. The primary endpoint of the study is how does your tumor look on scans, which requires people to go come back to the doctor. And there's a Kaplan-Meier curve that shows that if you got the study drug, the time until your tumor got worse on scans was like eight months. And the control arm, it's, I forget, maybe six months off the top of my head. But there's a statistically significant difference in the time until the tumor looks worse on scans. But we looked at this closely and we noticed, well, there's a whole bunch more people lost to follow up on the treatment arm than the control arm. And that happens very early on. It's like all early censoring. Um, it's all events uh, lost of help very, very early, which is right around the time where you feel so crummy taking this medicine that you're not going to you know, potentially come get your scans. And we hypothesized that 
the people in whom the medicine is kind of tipping over, getting for them from otherwise show up to not show up, they're not the average person. It's not an uninformative event. It's an informative event. It's the people who are most vulnerable. And so perhaps the entire difference seen in the study is an artifact because you are losing more people to follow up. They're not people chosen at random. They're people more likely to experience the event of interest. And in that, but you know, I had never thought about it using the concept of collider, but you're absolutely right. It is a collider. And that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and the fact that this can be a problem in randomized trials, I think, is really crucial and, and not um, necessarily as well understood as it should be. Yes. Uh, you often see trials where people are like, well, we had some loss to follow up, but we just used the data that we had available, right. you know, the complete case data. Right. Um, and the big problem is, you know, randomized trials, the benefit is in the randomization. And well, at random, the randomization means that the people in the treatment group one and treatment group two are roughly the same kinds of people at the time you randomize them. Mm-hmm. But by definition, loss to follow-up has to happen after that. Right. And so anything that happens after you've randomized is not guaranteed to be protected from bias by randomization. Right. And so loss to follow-up can mean even, you know, your intention to treat effect in your trial um, can just be noise or bias, or it can lead you to the wrong decision if you don't take into account the possibility of, of this collider bias. That's so important. And I think the other thing, the point like I like to make is that, um, you know, these days in the modern world of clinical trials, there's some endpoints where we really don't have a lot of loss to follow up. For instance, all-cause mortality in these cancer trials, um, we can often find that from social security numbers, from death certificates, from calling the family. Even if a person stopped coming to my clinic, I can know if they lived or died. But if if the endpoint is something that's contingent on them showing up to clinic to get a blood test or a scan or something like that, you can have a lot of loss to follow up. And, and that can occur uh, in an imbalanced way between the two arms of the study. Um, and it, it's not occurring at random. And, and I think those are sort of all key considerations. So what's the yeah, example exactly. you used on your podcast? Um, so on our podcast, we use sort of um, this sort of one of those classic early examples, um, I think probably developed in economics or something like that, um, of a collider or maybe even maybe even a philosophy example. Um, so the idea is that um, you know you're interested in sort of knowing whether um, there's any relationship between rain and somebody watering the lawn. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So does does someone watering the lawn cause it to rain? Mm-hmm. Let's say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so if if you have a one sort of way to think about that is you know, what are some things that might happen? And so um, when it rains, the ground gets wet. When someone waters the lawn, the ground also gets wet. Right. And so I think most people would sort of say watering the lawn does not cause it to rain. Of course, right. right. We yeah. know, we right. believe those things are independent if right. I can't make it rain by going outside and watering the lawn. Right. Um, and depending on who you are, whether or not it's raining may not affect whether you decide to go out and water the lawn. I know, you know, as I said on my podcast, I know my dad, he just, if it's watering day, then he'll go and he'll water his irrespective, garden. Irrespective. Of, irrespective. Exactly. Of the rain. Right. Okay. Um, and that's probably a, a Vancouver thing that it's basically <laughs> always raining, but yeah. you still have to water the vegetable garden. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so there's really, they, these are two independent events if it's raining and if the, the garden's being watered. But if you look only on those days when the ground is wet. Yes. So if you go outside and the ground is wet and it's not raining, what do you what what has to be true? You must have watered the lawn. Right. Right. And so now suddenly knowing when you look only on the days when the ground is wet, 
knowing whether or not it's raining tells you whether or not it's been someone's been watering the lawn. Right. And, and it so is, now it yeah. looks like there's a relationship, even if there isn't. I see. Um, uh, I, I like this example because you're conditioning on the collider. That's your inclusion criteria, your data set. Can you, can you, how about the example of this, like the one I hear a lot is um, so, um, some, some, the idea that, and I don't know if this is the case or not, I haven't looked into it too much, but the idea that like some of the studies that show obesity is protective are actually a collider, uh, a problem of conditioning on the collider. Um, could you explain that idea? Um, yeah, so this is an issue. Um, it's um, sometimes you kind of think about it as kind of a, a reverse causation issue. Yeah. So the idea would be that, you know, if you're just sort of enrolling people at a specific time point, um, that's not the start of their lives, that things have happened to people kind of up until that time point. Um, Let's say that and, we're just going to look at people who are hospitalized for heart attacks. Right. Um, so, so say we look at these people who are hospitalized for heart attacks. And so there's like different reasons why that might happen. And um, there's also sort of different <clears throat> reasons that might be going on with, with what's going on with someone's weight. And so if you wanted to look at um, obesity as a, a factor in, in development of cancer later on, right? So um, it's possible that some of those people who are, who are hospitalized they got hospitalized for a heart attack um, because they were obese. Um, it's also possible that they got hospitalized for a heart attack because they they were in some they they already had cancer, um, and maybe already having cancer also had caused them to lose weight recently. Mm -hmm. right? And so we end up enrolling people who um, the obese group in our population are not necessarily any more or less likely to have cancer than the general public, but the low weight group may be more likely to have cancer because it may be include people who've recently lost weight due to already having cancer mm -hmm, before we start. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where that idea can come in. I see. And, um, um, and maybe we can clean up the example by just saying like if it was just hospitalized. So we're just going to take people who are hospitalized yes. and we're going to look to see the relationship yeah. between weight and cancer. And it could right. look like paradoxically like obesity is protective for cancer. Um, but that's right. simply because among the people who are not obese, some of them may have already had cancer. And that's why they're right. not obese. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. So that's like another the the cleaner example is good because it's like there's a reason why people are hospitalized, yes, right? Yes, there's a reason why it people are hospitalized. It may be because, you know, they're obese and that led to a heart attack or it may be because they are precancerous and they're having some sim some symptoms, um, you know, or they've had r rapid weight loss and that's due to, you know, some undetected, un as, as yet undetected cancer. Malignancy, yeah. Or they have blood clot and that's because they have like uh, occult pancreatic cancer, something like that, yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, and the people who are being hospitalized because they're obese might be 10 years younger than the other people who are right. being hospitalized because one of the reasons they're being hospitalized is that obesity is not so good for whatever problems they have. And so now you're comparing people who are of disparate age. And of course, age is a huge risk factor for cancer. And so all because you've chosen to select people at a certain moment in time, um, you've introduced the potential uh, of having a collider. Uh, and the technical term of the bias is collider stratification bias or Berkson's paradox. Is that right? Um, so Berkson's, uh, Berkson's bias is kind of specific to the example where the collider comes about because of the selection of 
controls in a case control study from a hospital. Oh, I see. I see. So Berkson's um, is really uh, that specific. I see. It has to be a case control yeah. study, and it has to be how you select controls. Wow. Right. And so it is a collider bias problem. Yes, but it's a um, subgroup. And in that case, the collider <laughs> is selection into the study. And so case control status is a determinant of selection, right? Because mm-hmm. we choose all the cases we can and some proportion of the controls. So whether you're a case or control, it affects whether you're going to be selected. I see. Um, and then if um, the problem with that arises and you have problems with your case control study, if exposure is also some for some reason a, a cause of selection, right? So if we end up choosing controls in such a way that they're more or less likely than the general public to have um, the exposure or specific level of the exposure, then selection itself into the study becomes a collider because mm-hmm. being a case or control is a cause of selection and exposure is a cause of selection. And so that specific setting for collider bias is Berkson's bias. I see. Well, that's a, that's a distinction I did not appreciate. <laughs> Okay, let me ask you about this one concept that Miguel Hernan talks a lot about, which is this idea that one of the major problems with like retrospective observational studies is that the authors are not really asking a causal question. And I and I've I've understood him to mean the following, which is like if you're if you look at a retrospective study and it's like we compared people who ate fish for ten years against people who ate red meat for ten years, you're not really asking a causal what do I do tomorrow question. What you really want to be asking is we're going to take a bunch of people who ate you know forty percent fish and sixty percent red meat, but then one moment in time one group of them decided I'm going to shift my ratio to fish. I'm going to eat ninety percent fish, ten percent red meat, and the other group of people said you know what I'm going to go the other direction, and so what you really want to ask is a question of if I'm person X who's experienced, you know, whatever events, um, if I make one choice versus another choice, what happens to me? And the reason it's so important to ask it in this very formal way, in an almost kind of like RCT inclusion criteria way, is because that affects how you actually run your retrospective observational study. And, And it's important because of something called setting your time zero. Uh, okay. Uh, so that's as far as I've gotten. Uh, and, and, okay. Uh, okay. So, so I mean, wh- yeah. So what do you, what do you think? I mean, I think like what he's saying is like very logical to me, which is that the majority of the studies you read are not really asking a question that makes sense for what people want to know. Um, and we should ask the right question and that'll lead us to do better studies. Right. So I think this kind of comes back to the idea that um, the goal of causal inference really is to get evidence to help us make a decision. Mm -hmm. And so there's always some decision that we want somebody to take Mm -hmm. based on on the answer to this question. And so um, this is, uh, you kind of alluded to by saying it was kind of like an RCT, um, but we have this sort of formalization of calling it the target trial framework, where we think about, okay, we have a question we want to answer, like, um, what should I eat? And we think about, okay, when are, when are we going to decide that? When does that decision need to be made? Who's making that decision? And what are the options the person's deciding about? Mm-hmm. And think about how that implies a randomized trial that we would do if we had, you know, mm-hmm. un, unlimited access to resources and no ethical constraints and et cetera. Um, what would that trial look like? And then we use that to help us think through the observational study. And Mm -hmm. so when you say, you know, people who ate fish for 10 years versus people who ate red meat for 10 years, you know, are we talking about, you know, when, when, if, if we want to compare those two groups where maybe we're thinking about a trial that says today, regardless of what you ate in the past for the next 10 years, eat fish and red meat. Right. And probably 
the effect of that on the outcome depends whether today when we make the decision is if you're a you're a one-year-old or you're a 50 year old right right so there's some difference there we have to think about that um but the other thing is you know, then there's a second possibility that what we may actually want to say is, oh, I don't really care on average, regardless of your history, you switch to only eating fish or only eating red meat. I want to know if I've currently been eating, you know, 30% red meat and I drop that to 15, right. what is that going to do for me? Right. And so now the decision is among people who are eating 30% red meat, what happens when they do or don't change their consumption? And so in that trial, we would have to enroll people who for some period of time have been eating 30% red meat. Right. And we would then randomize at that point, assign them to reduce or not reduce or maybe even increase their red meat um, and see what happens. And so that thinking through that can kind of help us figure out what question we're asking by thinking about what is the decision point and um, who is the decision for? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the time zero problem is kind of related to that in that, um, you know, we can think about, I don't know if fish and red meat is the best comparison for this because right, I can't yeah. really think of a good example yeah, where right. where <laughs> happened. But, you know, so for example, if we if we had imagined a trial where we How said, about a okay, supplement, vitamin E supplement, because there might be a time zero in terms of uh, it's only at a certain age you'd even start to think, think about taking such yeah, a supplement, right? Yeah, So, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to try with the fish and red meat. Okay, and okay, you try it, yeah. Okay. That's a, yeah. Um, so, okay, so say we want to do a trial where we say on, on your 40th birthday, yeah. start eating fish or yeah. um, taking red meat. Or yeah. eating red meat. Yeah. And that's going to be your only source of, of protein in your diet from that yeah. point on for, for 10 years. Okay. Um, but say that, you know, in a randomized trial, if we did this, we'd know when time zero started. It's right. when you're randomized. Right. Um, and then some of the people, if we haven't paid attention to this, some of the people in the fish arm are going to be allergic to fish. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to stop taking fish. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or maybe, you know, they'll if they're particularly vulnerable people, they may actually, you know, die from consuming the fish. Right. Okay. Let's hypothesize. Right. So in this theoretical trial, we've, we end up kind of very early on depleting the fish eaters, especially the fish eaters who are really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, beyond that, after that first year, when all the people who are really allergic to fish and especially really frail are either dead or dropped out of our study. Now, the ones that are left in the fish arm are much healthier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The red meat arm, we haven't really dropped anybody. People don't, red meat allergies, I think, are not that common. You know, everybody's just sort of continuing as usual. Okay. In a randomized trial, we know when the time zero started, and we can count that f- the deaths that happened in that right, first year right. the early as attributable attrition. to fish. Yeah, right, 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 right. But in an observational study, we're coming in today at uh, finding a bunch of 40-year-olds and asking them if they've eaten fish or red meat since they were 30. Yes. It's impossible to find someone who died at 31. Right, right. Because they were eating fish. Right, right. <laughs> right? So in this case, in an observational study, even if we sort of said, okay, we're going to go to where you started eating fish yeah. or whatever, the the fish group has this sort of extra benefit of there'll they'll be people who are surviving beyond the time when you would start have to stop taking eating fish because you're allergic or something like that. Right. So this is kind of the the idea of why it's a problem um, in observational studies that we don't have this clear start time for everyone. Right. And then in the setting of sort of vitamin E or something like that, where it's sort of the question isn't, you know, 
choose one activity versus the other activity. It's like, do I do this at all? Um, Now the problem is, you know, we might easily be able to identify in our data when someone starts taking vitamin E, if that's something that's been recorded, say, in medical records. But when does someone, if our comparison is never take vitamin E, mm-hmm. when do you start never doing something? Right, right. <laughs> right. You kind of have to, you kind of don't know until, like, time is up. <laughs> yeah. When someone has never done something. Right, right. Right. So if we, if we wanted to enroll, say we enrolled a bunch of people who are 30 years old and um, did a trial where we assigned them to vitamin E or not, then we'd know who's in the trial. But in observational data, if we're just like looking for people who started vitamin E during their 30s versus people who never started it at all in their 30s, well, people who never started it at all in their 30s, we're going to think that we should be counting people who die when they're 31, mm. a car accident, a mm-hmm. skiing accident, whatever. Not all those people, if they haven't, they're, they're really quite young. Their death is unrelated to vitamin E, mm-hmm. but, but they're getting they haven't preferentially yet had in the one opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They haven't yet had the opportunity to start vitamin E. And so they would be classified as never users. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trial, they wouldn't. Be. And in trial, they wouldn't be. And that's like a key point. And so I guess like like one of the points that you that that I think that both you and Miguel make often, which is that um, it's easy to say the problem with observational studies is that we did not handle confounding well. We were missing some confounding, but far more often, what you're what the, the problem with the observational study was you did not handle time zero well. Um, and I guess the one example I often think about is the example of um, there's a medicine that we give women who've had breast cancer that prevents recurrence, uh, tamoxifen. And if in some women, it causes amenorrhea, which is defined as the loss of a period uh, for six months. Um, and if you look retrospectively, it'll, you'll say that women who become amenorrheic on tamoxifen do a lot better than women who don't. But one of the things, of course, to become amenorrheic is you had to go at least six months on tamoxifen without experiencing the event of interest. And that is guaranteed time to you. That is the so-called exactly. immortal time. And you have a time zero problem, which is that it is impossible to become amenorrheic on tamoxifen um, and experience an event in the first six months. That is impossible. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. That's a perfect example. Just because, yeah, it builds in into the <laughs> definition, the time point of it. It's a so I mean, in fact, and it's not just like um, it's a great example, and it's also like a real example because there are a number of studies that came out about a, two decades ago from big trial and other trials that showed exactly that, and people believed it, and so they felt like, well, maybe we should increase the dose until patients become amenorrheic. So you know, they're taking it um, right, like sort of a causal lesson that we can learn mm-hmm. and extrapolate. Okay, well, here's my question to you about this. So it's when you, when you listen to, you know, both of you talk on this topic, it's very compelling. It's super logical. Like, of course, boy, I hit a brick against my head. Like, why weren't we thinking about this all along? But yet, if I were to randomly pick the next 200 observational studies published in the premier 50, 60, 70 journals that someone is interpreting in a causal way and ask how many of them are approaching it with a target trial framework or in this way you've advocated, I would suspect it would be one or less than one, like, you know, out of 200, like very few people are doing this. Um, so I guess my question is, is like, I guess the simple one question is, is like, isn't that concerning? And two, like, is, is, I mean, is it part of the reason why observational studies get a bad reputation because so many people are doing them badly? That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So I think, um, yes, and no. So I think, as you say, like, 
a lot of people worry about confounding. And I think it's very easy for people to think about, you know, potential confounders that could be missed. Um, but one of the things we see is that when we really try to dive into a question and look at data and try to see how do we, if we analyze it in different ways, where do we go wrong? You know, a lot of time, so long as you've got the big major confounders, adding more confounders doesn't really change things much. Mm. And, but if you screw up time zero, yeah. you can, you can basically give yourself any result you want mm -hmm. by, by an improper choice of, of time zero. Um, so, you know, it's kind of why Miguel, I think, calls it the self-inflicted wound. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it um, you know, I think it's something where, you know, randomized trials are, are, have very strict guidelines and, and would never allow <laughs> such an ambiguous thing to happen um, because, it would be so easy for a pharmaceutical company to just get whatever result they wanted by how mm. they define time zero if mm -hmm. they were doing it sort of adversarially. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, if we go and look at, you know, the next 200 trials published in the top medical journals, yes. the number of them that properly handle loss to follow up yes. and, and actually think through is loss to follow up a collider in my trial setting. And if so, how do I deal with it to get the right answer is also probably going to be really small. Hmm. And so I think this sort of, on the one hand, yes, there are a lot of observational studies that are done badly, mm -hmm. but there are also a lot of randomized trials that, <laughs> that are, done are not poorly. done well enough. I see. Oh, um, boy. Okay. So You're taking it the other way. <laughs> right. I see. <laughs> I think, you know, it's sort of like, yes, if we had, you know, if you told me here is as much money as you need, go and do the best study you possibly can on this question, I'm going to try to do a randomized trial. Right. 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 But. Right. There are lots of things that we're just never going to be allowed to do a randomized trial on, and we would never want to do a randomized trial on. You know, we don't want to force people to smoke just to see if smoking really for sure causes lung cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, for some questions, randomized trials are just completely off the table. I agree and, with you. I, I just don't like that one example, but I agree with you. Because okay, I could think, I think that, that example, you can flip it and you could say like of somebody who's been a heavy smoker till they're 60, you know, a heavy smoking cessation strategy superior to like a, a lesser strategy or something like that. Right. So, yeah. I mean, but that asks a different question, right? That's right. a decision that you would make for a 60 year old coming into your clinic who's already a heavy smoker who's saying, doctor, should I quit? Right. But what do you do if a 12 year old comes into your clinic and says, doctor, should I start smoking? And I guess I'd say you can't use that study on a 60 year old to inform that question. No. And I get, it's, yes, it's not the same question. I know. But I guess, I mean, I guess there's a number of other different, I mean, I, I, I see your point. It's a different question, but there's like another number of other differences I see, which is like, mm, like in medicine, like, I mean, this is a total offshoot, but I guess, I guess <laughs> I'd say like, uh, what we generally look for in medicine are a couple of things. Like one, everything we're offering has a putative benefit. We're not really in the putative, like excluding putative harms game. And the standards of evidence we use for like, when do we deploy something we think is putatively beneficial? Like, when do you deploy something you think might benefit someone? I think that's medicine. When do you caution someone against ingesting a substance that may be harmful? I think that's beyond medicine. Like there can be like a new power plant that's made and it's just dumping things in the river and something they're like, you're like, I don't want you dumping all this stuff in the river. And they're like, there's never been a study that showed it's harmful. And I'm like, cause it's new. And I'm like, but I don't want to have that stand, you know? So it's sort of like a precautionary right. principle. I, I think standard. you're yeah. absolutely right. This is, and this is the distinction between epidemiology and, and medicine. Me and medicine is yes. that epidemiology considers both yes. those beneficial things. Well, should we start this potentially beneficial thing? And should we stop this potentially harmful thing? Yeah. And both of those are in the scope of of epidemiology because epidemiology is, you know, um, 
really about public health. And so part of that is about maximizing health and part of it is about minimizing harms. And so that's, I think, really why observational studies are not that common in medicine, because in medicine, you're really mostly making decisions about should I give someone this thing I think will do them good. Exactly. And in those settings... You can almost always, if you have enough resources, do a randomized trial. Yeah, and and it, not- yeah, and I'd say even like to add on to what you're saying is like not only is it like you have something you think offers a putative benefit, but at best the effect size is modest to marginal. Like we're not in the we're not in the super large treatment effect business. Like almost nothing we do is in that. And so like randomized trials are like perfect for the medicine business because it's like yeah, at best this is a five percent improvement mortality. That's very difficult to see in sort of you know uh, in, in sort of a, 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 a sort of a retrospective look where there could be confounding by indication or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But I think I see what you're saying that of course that when one thinks about larger questions, and of course, there's so many questions, you know, that extend far beyond medicine. Uh, but uh, the, the only reason I say that is that they're like, there's like a group of people in medicine who do their darndest to avoid doing the studies and for other reasons than they can't afford it or, or they think it's unethical. But I think that's, I mean, so well put. Um, but to, I mean, I want to come back to your, your point here about... Um, Sorry, we were talking about guarantee time a second ago. Or we're talking? No, we're talking about um, uh, uh, oh, like whether or not which which class of studies is right or wrong. More. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, so the other thing is that you know, okay, um, the issue of you know is this a study an exposure we can feel comfortable giving people in a trial setting um, aside, you know, there are other reasons why it might be difficult to do a trial. For example, a very rare disease, it may be very difficult to have enough people to enroll at any given time to make randomization feasible. And so, you know, there, if we're thinking about some very rare medical condition, it may make more sense to just look at data that's being collected over time observationally, because you can kind of go to lots and lots of different um, clinical settings and, and get their patients and kind of combine that all together. And so that might be a case where randomized trial, it's really not feasible for like a logistics reason. Um, And so in that setting, then if we think about what is the trial we would have liked to do, had we done a trial, had we been able to, we can use that to figure out when is time zero for our patients, who is actually eligible to be in this trial that we're not actually going to do, but we're going to use to inform our data collection. Um, What are the treatment strategies we would compare? And that can be really important because it may be the case that, you know, if you go back 30 years, you can get 200 patients. If you go back 10 years, you can get 100 patients. But those, you know, 30 to 10 year the extra patients that you would get if you went back 300 years are not having treatments that you would ever want to use now. Right, right. And so, you know, there's no point including them if they're not going to be in the trial, any of the arms of the hypothetical trial you would do. That's well put. Um, what is the dispute, or or maybe not dispute, what is the friendly discussion between Uta Pearl and Miguel Hernan and you? What is... What is at stake? What 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 is what are the areas of agreement? What are the areas of disagreement? So I think um, the chief disagreement is about the uh, it's it, it's kind of philosophical, okay. um, and I think My it's not kind. of super um, practical relevance for most people who are doing or consuming medical research, at least. Um, a, you know, epidemiology research may be a little bit more because some of the questions are more broader. But it, it kind of boils down to what when we say we're interested in a causal effect, 
are there restrictions on what we think a cause could be? And so sort of the one the one camp is this idea of a well-defined intervention. And most randomized trials, this is by design, you have a protocol that's very clearly laying out exactly what doses people in the treatment arms should take, exactly mm-hmm. how it should be administered, mm-hmm. and everything that could potentially affect how well the treatment works is going to be written into the protocol. Mm-hmm. And everything that doesn't affect how the, well the treatment works is not necessarily written into there and you can ignore. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a particular medication that you have to take with food, then that would be written to the protocol. But if it doesn't matter if you take it with food, that won't be written to the protocol. I see. And so this idea of sort of how well would you have to specify it so that everyone in your trial is given the same treatment yeah. so that you can then say, this is the treatment people got and that we're evaluating. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is, even in an observational study, you should think about that sort of protocol for treatment. I see. And if you can't think about um, a protocol for treatment, then can you even really say that you're asking about a causal effect? Right. And so I'd imagine that, so you guys say, uh, you need to think about the protocol for treatment. Right. And Dr. Pearl says, you don't need to think about that. So Dr. Pearl says, anything you can put on a DAG, you can ask a causal question about. Hmm. Um, and then when you ask, what can you put on a DAG? He says, that's up to the subject matter experts. Okay. So I don't, he he says that he thinks that there are no restrictions on what you can ask a causal question about. But when pushed, it, it seems like it comes down to whatever you feel comfortable putting on a DAG. And so in that sense, I would say there's no disagreement because I wouldn't feel comfortable putting the exposure on a DAG as a not well-defined exposure. Um, but on the other hand, a confounder could maybe be added as a not particularly well-defined confounder. Um, so... I think, you know, I, I make some distinctions then between the exposure and the confounders when thinking about drawing the DAG, I see. which I think um, Pearl would not like to make. But then, so I guess what I'd, I guess, what what motivates the passion on the debate? Like, so in the, pre- like, yeah, so what motivates the passion on the debate? Uh, can the, is the yellow shirt example relevant? Like, um, if you had cholesterol and MI and we talked about yellow shirt, like a lot of people wouldn't put yellow shirt on the DAG because they don't know, they didn't even think about yellow shirt, right? But they think it's totally irrelevant to the question. Um, right. Not, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, the, uh, the passion comes from a lot, I think, from and probably more like from the epidemiology side in in social epi, in settings like um, where there's really sort of complicated big questions to ask, um, where people hear you need a well-defined intervention to understand what cause you're thinking about. And um, they interpret that to mean I cannot, le- you're saying that I can't legitimately look at the cause that I want to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we might be interested in the effects of, you know, systemic racism on health outcomes um, in the medical setting. Right. And so a lot of people would kind of characterize that on their in their causal question as a causal question about race. Right. But it's not really a causal question about race because we don't want to intervene on race. We don't want to make a decision. Should this person be, you know, Asian or Hispanic right. or black or right. white? Right. We're not. That's not a decision we want to make. And causal inference is about informing decisions. Right. And so. Um, it's a causal question you know, about racial injustice and how to curb right. that, not race itself. But right. They can and easily so a lot of people kind of yeah. exactly. So a lot of people kind of hear like, you can't do causal inference on race and interpret that to mean we can't study racial questions at all. Mm. And really, 
Instead, what it means is you need to be more specific about the question you're asking, right? If we want to intervene to create, you know, a more racially just um, healthcare system, what does that look like? What interventions could we do? How are we going to get a handle on figuring out whether, you know, a particular clinic is a racially just or racially unjust in order to compare them. And it's not going to just be about what proportion of the participants or the patients at the clinic are black versus white. That's not enough to tell us whether that clinic is, um, you know, kind of going to be one which we will put in either exposure category. Right, right. I see what you're saying. And I think, I mean, I guess the reason I gravitate towards like your formulation of what a causal question is, at the end of the day, like in life and in everything in life, what we care about is what can human beings do going forward? Uh, that's what matters to shape our policy and our decisions in every walk of life. And and I don't know, it's always nice to know how the world is for the sake of knowing, but it's, in my opinion, maybe I'm leaning that way, it's always nicer to know what you can do about it. Okay, let me ask you right, a question. Yeah, no, go ahead. I think that's sort of the difference that, you know, there's there's... There's certainly scope for understanding the past and understanding what has happened in the past and and for, you know, engaging with um, qualitative information and, and looking at descriptive information and trying to understand how we got to where we are. But quantitative causal inference is about getting evidence to inform a decision that we will take in the future in order to achieve some future goal. Right. And so, you know, that's sort of really the limits of it. And so, you know, it, it's not a fix-all for everything. We don't want all our studies to be causal studies. Um, we also need descriptive studies. We also need studies where people are kind of trying to delve into the past and understand how do we got, got to where we are. Um, it's just that those are not going to be able to use the tools of quantitative causal inference. I see. Okay, my last question for you is this idea that um, like, I think in different disciplines, they try to connect things that are really, really far apart. Okay, what do I mean? Like in epidemiology, like a lot of times we're trying to connect um, things that like something that affected somebody in their 20s, does it have something to do with an outcome in their 40s? Okay, you know, I, I, as a doctor, like I get those kinds of questions. Sometimes I read in economics, and this is where I'm going to pick on the econ folks, <laughs> where they're trying to connect like, oh, if we had an increase in advertising on television for drug products between 1962 and 1964 for depression medications, did we have less purchasing of firearms between 1979 and 1981? You know what I mean? They're trying to take like television ads in Missouri in one period of time and connect it to purchasing a product in Missouri at another period of time. And and like and of course you're like, whoa, okay. I mean, you can. It's a causal question. Like, did you know, ex- increased exposure in one time period in some markets versus other markets lead to difference in this outcome. But there's lots of intermediates along the way. And there's lots of places where things can get washed in or washed out. People move in, people move out. Okay, so I guess my question is like, maybe not, it's not a philosophical question, but a practical question for somebody who does causal inference is, can you construct a causal inference chain that is so long, if a butterfly flaps its wings, is there a tornado in Texas kind of long? Um, where in which the methods are not useful or don't work or like you're not getting reliable results because there's just more noise in the chain than there is signal or is, am I, am I, does this even make sense? Like this is kind of a philosophical question about how long can you go? Yeah. Um, I think, I think there absolutely is. And, and, you know, especially if, um, I mean, I think what you're asking about is sort of 
you know, you have this, this say advertising law and it's not directly affecting those gun purchases. It's affecting it through some ch- change in, yes. you know, depression medication yes. usage. Yes. And yes. then yeah. Yeah. the, the sort of parenting habits that might yes, result yeah. from that. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. what it's like to be uh, growing up around other people whose parents are or aren't on yes. depression medications. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. what that means for like the types of television you watch and how that impacts, you know, your video game choices, yes. whatever, whatever. Yeah, and yeah. you sort of have this series yes, of, yes. of effects. And and I think absolutely at the, you know, um, you know, sort of the butterfly flapping its wings on the hurricane is, is a great example because, you know, we can ask the question, you know, if this butterfly flaps its wings here versus it doesn't, that's a well-defined intervention and we're, we've got it specifically on the map and then we have something we want to look at. It's possible for the effect to be so small because that's so far removed in time mm-hmm. that it's not going to be measurable in data because even if we've got a really great, well-specified causal effect. We have um, measured all the confounders. We have identifiability. We still need to worry about statistical inference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if our, you know, if we've, even if we've got like a million people in our sample size or 10 million people in our sample size, if the effect is really tiny, it might just be some, anything we observe might be due to chance, um, you know, or, you know, so, and then a lot of times we don't have a million people or 10 million people. We have, you know, 500 people. And then, right. you know, there's no hope of estimating something that's really tiny. Right. And so I think that's sort of the causal inference part of it is just sort of one thing. Like, what is the question you want to ask? How should you design your study to answer it? And then there's the statistical inference piece and all this issue about the p-value, et cetera. All of that comes in um, there at that end of things as well. Right. I mean, I exaggerated the example a little bit, but I've seen some examples that aren't that dissimilar (laughs) where I'm like, part of me is like, um, uh, but you know, there are almost always examples that go the other way, which is not that they had a null effect and maybe it was lost because of, uh, all the noise along the way, but they still have a significant effect. And part of me wonders, it's like, um, you know, the only reason we're hearing about this is that you've tried to connect all sorts of the butterfly flaps its wings and you connected it against every storm you could possibly get. But storm Hurricane Henry did connect, you know, like like a, cha- you know, like a multiplicity yeah. problem. Yeah. Right. And so that's the other thing is that as you get further and further back in time, you know, it's almost possible to say that everything caused everything else, right. you yeah. know, um, you know, the the reason we're talking today um on Skype was was caused by Christopher Columbus getting in a ship. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right, like, right, right. but if he, if he hadn't done that, we probably wouldn't be talking on this podcast it's true. today. It's, true. it's possible someone else would have done it. We'd be talking next week or last week or three <laughs> right. years ago, right. but it wouldn't be right now today. Right. Um, because what's happening today is, is determined by a whole sequence of things in the past. And, you know, so I think you can get far enough back that it's meaningless to say that something has a causal effect as well, even if you measure one and you see one there. Okay. I promised you last question, but now this is my real last question, which is like, you know, I, I, my understanding is you start on the faculty in the last year. Is that right? About yeah, May. May. Okay. And, um, I guess I'm a little bit curious as to like, what is your research program? Um, um, maybe if, if uh, like, are you recruiting for your team? If there's, if listeners might be interested in that or, and like, like, you know, like what are the projects that most excite you going forward? Um, yeah, so I have right now I have a grant that's looking at, um, HPV vaccination in girls with perinatal HIV. Mm. Um, and that one's kind of an exciting project just because, um, the HPV vaccine is generally really great, 
but it doesn't seem to be working well in girls who already have HIV when they get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big problem because cervical cancer is like an AIDS-defining cancer course, and, yeah. and they're really high risk for it. Yeah, that's the group you want it to work in. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, um, but one of the challenges is that the data that we have, because this cohort is about girls who got infected close to um, or during birth process, you know, none of them are really at the age where they're expected to get cervical cancer yet. And so we kind of have this, we have this great observational cohort, sort of the largest cohort of this kind of group existing, but they're all too young to get cervical cancer. And so there's sort of a methods aspects of trying to combine what we see in the data and really understand, like, does the vaccine seem to be generating a response? And then based on that response, what can we predict about the future, about what cervical cancer might look like in these girls? And can we recommend for them in particular, screening strategies that will help them reduce their personal risk of cervical cancer. And then also for girls like them in the future, both vaccination and screening can- um, strategies to improve cervical cancer. Okay. Um, so I guess spot. I can say like, oh, well, what a perfect project for you because like one, it is super important. And two, it is super methodologically and conceptually challenging. And it's like like the perfect project for you, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and are there spots for people on your team or are you already re- full recruited? So this is, yeah, this unfortunately it's just an R21. So it's a sort of small project mm-hmm. getting started. But I'm also currently in the process of writing some other grants and trying to figure out like, you know, my goal is to build up my team. So um yeah, I have projects that are related to sort of reanalyzing randomized trials to account for loss to follow up or to account for non-adherence and see how much that changes the results and whether there's, um, you know, basically every time we do this in a new trial, there's new technical issues that need to be sort of figured out to really um, apply the methods. Even though the methods themselves are developed, there's always sort of hiccups when you think about applying them. And so um, that's sort of one aspect of my research. Another aspect is... Um, on sort of this idea of how to make, how to use simulation models to answer causal questions when you don't have access to all the data that you would need to have. So either you have most of the data and you have to supplement a little bit with something from the literature, or maybe you have none of the data and you just need to find it all in the literature. What would you need to do to get the best answer that you can? I see. Um, And uh, so those are kind of things which I'm working on getting more funding for, and I'm always looking for collaborators who have data or a substantive question that's exciting that they could, those questions could be applied to. Um, yeah. That sounds great. Um, I guess I want to thank you. I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And I also want to thank you probably on behalf of many people for whom, you know, you've taught us a lot. And like, I've really learned from your tutorials. Um, uh, I got, I mean, I feel like I got really great training in epidemiology. Uh, I, d- I took the doctorate level classes at Hopkins and, and they were fantastic teachers and they're fantastic classmates who also taught me a lot. But um, uh, I still learned like extra stuff from following your tutorials. <laughs> and I still like found like, wow, oh yeah, she's like explaining it like super, super well. And I find that on your podcast a lot. And I think that's a real gift. And I guess um, I tried to push you on it a little bit, but I know you're probably also a little bit modest, um, which is the problem with interviewees. Sometimes they're too modest. But I guess I would say like, I mean, I believe that like when I see somebody like you, um, 
which I which I think I've like tweeted about, which is that like sometimes you do see somebody in their first three years of their faculty, and you read like two of their papers, or you see how they explain something, and you just know instantly, like, oh my god, this person is super good. Like they're just meant to do this, and they're it's like just it's so natural. Like their brain was made to like think about causal inference and explain it to other people, and so it's a real gift. And I guess uh, I see that in you, and so it's like an honor to learn from you. And um, I think uh, I'm not the only one, of course. A lot of people are. And I guess I have to commend um, uh, the American Journal of Epidemiology, uh, which has sponsored your podcast because they also see it. And um, so I really want to thank you for coming on this podcast. And if it's okay with you, um, I'll have you back at some point to explain like some other tricky epi concepts um, <laughs> to like the people who listen to this because I think they're very like-minded um, and they should all check out your podcast uh, with Lucy yeah. Stats. Uh, Lucy Stats, as I know, because I know everyone by Twitter handles. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Lucy D'Agostino McGowan is my co-host on Casual Inference. Um, and she's also really great at explaining. I think it's been really fun working with her. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to come back on your podcast anytime and, and answer more epi questions. I think, you know, it's... Um, especially because I'm somebody whose focus is on the epi, epi yeah. methods. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the outreach that I'm interested in doing is about explaining the methods. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you've built up a really great audience of listeners who are really interested in learning about this stuff. So I'm happy to come on anytime and talk about that. Oh, thank you, Dr. Murray. We'll take you up on that. It's a pleasure to have you here and, uh, and stay warm in Boston. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.